Hood by J.M. Bullpit. Read by Jack Collard. Chapter 13. The Gladiators Throughout the rest of the day, Robbie gladly kept himself in the small stone chamber that only the most devout monk might ever comfortably refer to as a bedroom. But Robbie was grateful for the solitude it offered. Thoughts and feelings about his grandma and Ivor bonded like chemical compounds in the furious furnace of his mind until Robbie did not know if he was reacting to the memories of his family or the conflict of emotions they provoked in him. Sometime after lunchtime, after Gwen Carroll and Ivan Noon had departed, Robbie had his face turned towards the stone wall when he heard someone enter the room. Robert! Robert! Are you with us? Gabriel Sage whispered. Preferring to feign sleep than face anyone, especially his soon-to-be stepfather, Robbie made no answer. There was silence, pacing, and then the door was pulled shut once more. Standing on top of the coarse, splinter-ridden tea chest beside the bed was a steaming mug of tea. Robbie eyed it suspiciously, not knowing what the drink symbolised. Was it a declaration of peace, or a gesture of kindness forced upon Gabriel Sage by his fiancée? Hardly having touched breakfast, however, Robbie was glad of something to occupy his stomach and, as soon as it was cool enough to drink, he downed the liquid and returned to the siege of his thoughts. As the day drew on, Robbie became aware that there was continual and frenetic activity somewhere in the museum. On most days of the week, this would have made no impression on anyone living in the museum, but it was Saturday, and the builders never worked at a weekend. The constant hammering became a beat to Robbie's own thoughts, which had become stuck in a loop as he replayed the events of the previous night over and over again. Occasionally, 
A scenario would creep up on him, suggesting that his grandmother might be acting secretly on behalf of some government organisation as a force for good. Someone who had been chosen for some unfathomable reason to infiltrate some of the world's most dangerous gangsters. The deal is not what it seems to be, she had said. You will see the true effects of last night's undertaking. The true effects of what the Mona Lisas have started. But what did that mean? Robbie began to explore any possibility that hinted at decent, ethical alternatives, no matter how remote. He would eagerly work through any idea, leaping from one improbable branch to another, until the last twig of reason snapped under the weight of the idea, and he fell back down to the root of the truth. His grandmother and aunts were the heads of a criminal underworld. Only a single sliver of hope glimmered in Robbie's mind. Maybe Ellie Ash had fought her way through the hypnotism and somehow guessed at Grandma Gwen's activities. Maybe his mother's intuition had always tried to protect her son from Gwen and Ivor by always putting distance between him and them. Robbie's mind was still spinning around in his insanity-inducing loop, when Gabriel Sage burst in on him. What time is it? Robbie asked. Late. They've just closed the doors of the bog digger's arms, declared Gabriel Sage, beneath half-lidded eyes perched upon a gently swaying head. I say closed, but the old mongrels of the establishment are having a late-night lock-in after-hours drinking session, if you will was made crystal clear to me that I wasn't damn well invited. To hell with them. Gabriel Sage lurched around to face the rough direction of the pub and bellowed at the wall. To hell with you. Blame those slacker builders for poisoning the village against me. They see this stuff here. Their puny minds and tawdry taste have no hope of appreciating. They don't understand. Simple as that. I have the ability to bring fame to this shabby little settlement, and the reflected glory could have been theirs, and not one of them has the vision to see it. That's the flaming museum out there with them, not in here with my dynamic and unique work. Sage lurched around once more to face the offending wall. To hell with them, and thrice damn all to filthiest, stinky-ass pit of hell. May all your beer be warm and taste of urine. The devil has his own lock-in, you know, and they're all invited. Robbie began to wonder if Gabriel Sage was about to take out his drunken resentment on someone whose life he could make a living hell. Thank you for the tea, Robbie ventured with a pacifying remark. What are you talking about? Oh, yes, welcome and all that. Can't have you wasting away, can we? What would your mother say? The deep stone walls threw out a chill into the room, causing Robbie to reach for the extraordinary coat with the unique functions but it was to be found nowhere in the room. 
If you're looking for your coat, by the way, I've confiscated it. Find it hard to run away again without it, won't you? exclaimed Sage. Suddenly, the cup of tea made sense to Robbie, although he was surprised his soon-to-be stepfather would even bother to create an excuse to enter the room and take anything he fancied. The flamboyant man suddenly went ominously quiet, staring leerily at Robbie, swaying like a high branch in a stiff wind and narrowing the tips of his moustache in the manner of an old-fashioned villain. Robbie found the silence uncomfortable in the extreme. Are we back on the road tomorrow? Robbie asked. No, you can sleep during the day or do whatever your mother has planned for you, said Gabriel Sage. Thanks, but I had a fair amount of rest today, said Robbie, rubbing his eyes and stretching. Although I don't really feel the benefit of it. Well, benefit or not... We're working tonight. What? What do you want with me tonight? I believe you've the vision, Robert, declared Gabriel Sage in an extravagant whisper. Don't know what all that silly nonsense was about running back to your grandmother's. Disappointed in you. Had such high hopes, high hopes for you was mulling over whether I should offer you the Flavian. Gabriel Sage lurched out of the door before he finished uttering the last words. Robbie was feeling light-headed and ravenous, but after a minute was intrigued enough to follow his soon-to-be stepfather out of the bedroom and into the cottages of the museum. The only lights on in the buildings were those in the display cases which illuminated the museum in haunting pockets of glowing stillness. Gabriel Sage was nowhere to be seen. As Robbie crept through the cottages, his eyes were inevitably drawn to the menagerie of dead animals enacting human deeds and expressions. Cats standing on their hind legs, as if that had always been their true stance. The plumage of songbirds hidden beneath intricate costumes and accessories. Rodents wielding tools and weapons in defiance to the natural way they had lived their lives. The whole experience of walking through the museum took on the properties of a particularly vivid and unsettling hallucination. Nuff time wasted now, Sage's voice echoed, sounding distant and disembodied. You must begin serving your apprenticeship now. Tonight. Robbie padded through the part of the museum set within the cottages, past Sage's workshop at the far end, and in through the open doorway into the church. Until the previous afternoon, the church had remained hidden behind a curtain of opaque plastic. Two strides into the building, Robbie understood why. This was where the larger, standalone exhibits had been installed. Acting as two sinister sentries to this part of the museum were the Minotaur and Centaur, appearing to dare the visitor to enter their domain. Suspended from the rafters of the roof, the griffin had been frozen in a chase, harried by what looked like a flock of demons, but were in fact about a dozen shaven marakees, 
Suspended from the rafters of the roof, the griffin had been frozen in a chase, harried by what looked like a flock of demons, but which were, in fact, about a dozen shaven macaques bearing rook wings and goat horns. To one side of the church, an Irish wolfhound's body had been manipulated to accommodate the robust ribcage of a Rottweiler, from which sprouted three savage heads in a convincing imitation of Cerberus, the guard dog of the underworld. Tonight marks your childhood's end, declared Sage's voice. Robbie could still not locate his soon-to-be stepfather, but the voice sounded nearby. Actually, I think you're a day late, called out Robbie. My childhood ended last night. Beside Cerberus stood an extraordinary creation, its head and body a clashing combination of gorilla and blackened polar bear, although Sage had somehow managed to make the face assume an expression more akin to a cruel human, even with its dead shark eyes. Whilst its back legs were those of a shire horse which, in themselves, seemed to have been extended by giraffe shin bones, so the entire beast stood about twelve feet high. Even from a distance, and distance is exactly what Robbie intended to keep between himself and this monster, he could read the sign saying, Grendel. Facing Cerberus and Grendel was a sphinx, flanked by squat examples of the Egyptian deities of Anubis, with his jackal face, and Osiris boasting a magnificent eagle head and neck plumage. But the eye was drawn to the end of the church, where a mock-up of a woodland clearing had been created, complete with trees, mounds of grass and wild flowers. But this was not a wood to be willingly entered. In the clearing stood three fawns, their deer hindquarters and bold chimp upper bodies straining to catch a glimpse of the pack of stalking werewolves squatting amongst the shadows, their dog faces and primate limbs seeming far too real to have been anything but born into the world. But even Grendel and the werewolves stood in the shadow of the rearing beast at the end of the church, Thirty feet long, with a fifty-foot wingspan, and clutching a sheep in its talons, the dragon was the piece de resistance of the collection. Its mere presence alone stopped Robbie in his tracks. He stood near the entrance to the church, gawping in astonishment, trying to distinguish which elements of other animals had been assembled to create the mythical creature. The head is a combination of a Komodo dragon and crocodile after extensive reconstruction to lend it more size and heft, finished with the horns of a Spanish fighting bull, said Sage, fighting out from beneath a tree in the haunting woodland scene. Being in the presence of his creations seemed to both sober Sage and send him into rapture. Neck of a giraffe attached to the body of a Suffolk punch horse, which in turn is connected to an elongated version of a salt water crocodile's tail. Both 
Head and tail have a fair amount of structural foam in them, too. The base claws are those of ostriches, but the feet have been cosmetically enhanced by having something of the great apes and cassowaries for a more realistic talon. Wings, fashioned from whale baleen, giraffe leg bones and tanned leather, almost all of the torso covered in the hide of crocodiles with the lighter belly scales added consistently to add a touch of authenticity. Sage listed each aspect of the dragon as if he were a poet cataloguing his lover's features. It's extraordinary, said Robbie. It is, isn't it? You and I have found agreement again. Wouldn't Nostrils want this as a find? Nostrils? interrupted Sage. Your friend, explained Robbie. The one who gets your creatures and plants your creations for others to discover. Nostrils! You mean Freddy Frobisher, Sage smoked. Yes, I see what you mean about the nostrils, though. Wouldn't he want the world to discover a dragon? Ah, indeed. But it wouldn't take zoologists long to spot the joins, replied Sage ruefully or discover the wings were ordinary cowhide and whale baleen. That's even before they find the structural foam. The trick with these false finds is to make them credible, not to outreach yourself, Robert. Sadly, this dragon will never fly farther than this church. Gabriel Sage rightly believed that not only did most of the larger exhibits need no mock environment or context, but that the spectacle of these mythical creatures captivated the brain and the eye with the sheer audacity and sheer traversity of their existence. Taking care not to stray too close to any of the exhibits, Robbie could not help himself from walking up to the Sphinx and staring at its face in disbelief. The features were slightly awkward in the way they were set, and there was a waxy sheen to the skin as if the preservation process had been unsuccessful, but it was clearly not the head of an ape. With mounting revulsion, Robbie stared into the eyes of the mythical beast and wondered if Nostrils had finally delivered to his business partner the only animal specimen that had eluded Sage until now. It can't be real. Robbie finally managed to utter, craving the sound of his own voice in a place of threatening silence. It can't be real. It can't be a real... Human, Sage finished his sentence for him. Would that it were, Robert. My sphinx would look a damn sight more convincing without this silicone facsimile. Most of these creatures lack a touch of humanity. So does the creator. Robbie could not help muttering under his breath. What was that? Sage demanded, spinning on his head and almost colliding with Anubis. I said they still look pretty menacing and perverse to me, Robbie lied. You're very kind, replied Sage, with the utmost sincerity. But a great deal of my work is comprised over this issue. 
Like so many brother artists and scientists before me, my work is thwarted by those with a lesser vision than my own. Gabriel Sage surveyed his work and was silent for so long, Robbie half expected that the man had fallen asleep on his feet. Anyway, enough of such longing, Sage eventually continued. This is what I have planned for you. In the centre of the church, where the former aisle might have been, were a number of other display cases, and Sage now shepherded Robbie over towards an exhibit of concentric circles making an amphitheatre. Are you here to stay, Robert? Or are you going to flee back to your grandmother's again? Robbie knew that his life, such as it was, now lay here in Chuffing Sodmore with his mother and this man. I'm staying. Good. The museum is to open soon, and you will help advertise us by creating an exhibit. Stepfather and stepson working together. I have created the architecture for you, but at nights you will create all the occupants of the Flavian Amphitheatre watching a gladiatorial combat. I will lock your room but you may have access to any animals stored in the kitchen, not the workshop. Understood. Robbie considered defiance, but realised he had nowhere to run now. He nodded, and Gabriel Sage lurched back past him. Then the man stopped, reached inside his pocket, and drew out a craft knife. Slowly he exposed the thin blade. I understand that my work comes at a price. And, after all, the priest must face his first test of faith. But I was of the mind that I should exact some sort of payment for my guidance, said Sage with more than a hint of threat, as well as to punish you for running away into the bargain. Gabriel Sage mimed slashing Robbie across the knuckles, and then pretended to slice open one of Robbie's eyes. I shall have to think up some apt punishment, he declared enigmatically. As he retreated the blade back into the handle, he grinned, smoothing down his moustache at the same time. What do you mean? Getting me to do this? asked Robbie, pointing at the model amphitheatre. That's part of it. Good night, Robert. Don't let the bugs bite. Robbie was so famished, so drained, he could not muster enough emotion to hate Sage or try to work out what his payment might be, but headed for the kitchen for a snack, or anything that was edible and not soaked in preservative. As he sat thoughtfully munching his way through a sandwich, with the overpowering vapours of chemicals wafting around him like a sickening miasma, Robbie considered his options. Escape was pointless now he would not be returning to the only alternative of his grandmother's house. Yet, if he did not show some kind of defiance, some sort of rebellion towards his soon-to-be stepfather, Robbie knew that any spirit left in him would wither and expire as he became Sage's drone. 
The only conclusion Robbie arrived at was that the best way to mutiny against Sage, at least for the moment, was to try out-sage him. Robbie loathed taxidermy, but he would put these feelings aside to strive to create a gladiatorial masterpiece of an exhibit in an attempt to make it look like an effortless and innate gift. In short, Robbie would try to plant the seed in Gabriel Sage's mind that his talent for posing dead animals was not so special after all, to diminish the way his stepfather viewed his own ability. Robbie had no idea if he had the capacity to produce such a work, but, if nothing else, it would get Sage off his back for a while. Arranged before Robbie on the kitchen table were ten different animals between three to eight inches in length, all lined up as if auditioning to play the starring roles in the Roman scene. The gladiators had to be chosen first. Even before Caesar... Robbie understood that he had to get the gladiators right because making the spectacle engaging was the key to the success of the whole piece. One animal stood out instantly, by dint of it already bearing an obvious weapon in the shape of a horn, as well as being heavily armoured. The rhinoceros beetle was four inches long, powerfully built, and was a deep, unbroken black from tip to toe although the way it caught the light frequently made the animal appear as if it was coated in chrome. In the insect world, this specimen was clearly a heavyweight, capable of taking on all comers in any head-to-head. -head. This would be his mermillon, his armoured gladiator, Robbie decided. Identifying the beetle's opponent proved a little trickier, though. Robbie toyed with the idea of setting the beetle against a crab, but the very notion of the fight seemed absurd. Where and when in nature would the two animals ever meet? Robbie was determined that the beetle should be locked in combat with a creature it could feasibly meet if alive. Only then did he believe he might be able to show the character of each animal. Several of the other creatures did look fearsome enough to take on the rhinoceros beetle, particularly the tarantula, but, in the end, the pleasing physical contrast between the two opponents was how Robbie decided upon the Chinese mantis. If insects were capable of sleek beauty, then this example was stunning in a sinister sense. A full six inches in length with long, powerful, hooked front legs, this was a creature that relied on stealth, cunning, and lightning speed, as opposed to the beetle's brute strength. The mantis would be his retiarius, his barely armoured, net-wielding gladiator. Quickly devouring the last of his sandwich, Robbie was glad to remove the brittle bodies of the two insects into the church, exchanging the overwhelming smell of formalin and other preservative concoctions for the company of monsters. Robbie fought the chilling sensations that coursed up and down his spine as he tried to overcome his fear of turning his back on Grendel and Cerberus to work on the Roman amphitheatre. But every now and then he would catch a glimpse of a crouching werewolf in the corner of his eye. 
Then he would have to stand with his back to a wall for a few minutes to calm his nerves and shout out loud, Settle down, Robbie. Stop being so idiotic. They were never real. They will never move, as if the sound of his own voice was enough to exorcise the spirits and the threat of these monsters. Robbie had been exposed to Gabriel Sage and his work for long enough to understand the various methods of how to preserve different animals. It appeared that Gabriel Sage had been experimenting with cocktails of chemicals for some time now, until he had found a couple of preferred methods of preserving animals from the right astringent solutions to evaporate the water and lock up the cells of an animal to stop it rotting, to completely plasticize them. Robbie knew that the insects had been placed in a freezer for three months to dry them out. Unfortunately, such measures also made the animals brittle. Robbie took the bottle of Sage's own product, put on the heavy-duty protective gloves, and dipped the animal's entire body into the solution. He then had to wait five minutes whilst the cell walls of the animal's bodies softened and became more flexible. Keeping on the unwieldy gloves to stop his own skin cells being exposed to the solution, Robbie had about two to three hours to work with the insects before they took on a bodily shape forever. Choosing a couple of appropriate costumes that Gabriel Sage had a tailor in Thailand working on almost constantly, he attempted to dress the insects as gladiators, complete with weapons, as Sage would have done. But they merely looked ridiculous and undignified, and Robbie had no interest in endowing them with human qualities. Both creatures seemed to be silently screaming out that they did not need costumes or weapons to battle. Robbie agreed with them and stripped them bare again. They would fight as befitted their character. Robbie began by building a small structure of gossamer-thin carbon-fibre scaffolding, no thicker than an insect's leg, attached to tiny ball and socket joints upon which the gladiators would rest. Then he set about modelling the creatures. The rhinoceros beetle was the easier specimen to work with, partly because Robbie had allowed what he thought was the personality of the insect to dictate the character of the battle. It was to stand squarely on its legs, thrusting upwards with its head, using its natural armor and weapon at using its natural armor and weapon at its most effective. Its opponent was to react to this attack. As he had expected, a couple of the beetle's legs snapped off from the thorax during the modeling process. Robbie reached for another of Sage's miraculous solutions and, within a minute, the insect was attached to a full complement of limbs once more through the aid of invisible glue. The spindly Chinese mantis was more fiddly and delicate to manipulate, especially with the heavy-duty protective gloves. On one occasion... Robbie had been working with such focus on its back legs that he had not noticed that the mantis's head had become detached and was now blankly staring up at its opponent's underbelly. But Robbie remained determined to show a lithe opponent to the beetle's sturdy gladiator. 
Four legs and one detached head later, the gladiators were complete. The rhinoceros beetle's horn was jammed up under one of its opponent's grasping front legs, as if piercing the armpit, causing the whole mantis to be heaved up onto one side. But the mantis was far from being a victim, its other front leg having grasped the beetle by a ridge of its armature, as if pulling its opponent's eyes towards its own open jaw. When Robbie stepped back from his work, it was with a peculiar sense of pride that he acknowledged how well he had captured the straining energy of the two creatures as they remained fixed, frozen, in a confrontation that would never end. Before brushing both insects with a locking solution that would seep into their bodies and forever set their cells like concrete in their new postures, Robbie apologised to the rhinoceros beetle and the Chinese mantis. The last hour before dawn, he spent finishing off the beetle and the mantis with concessions to the human roles they were playing, such as clear beads of sweat, as well as trails of blood and dust. So engrossed was Robbie in his gladiators that, when he stepped back, he was startled to find Gabriel Sage stood beside him. Gabriel Sage looked unkempt and stern, possibly from a hangover. You didn't dress them as gladiators, he started. I didn't need to dress them as gladiators, replied Robbie. They're ferocious enough as they are. Sage stared curiously at Robbie and walked around the two creatures, frowning critically as he examined them. This is not how I would have approached the subject, declared Sage. But this is my work said Robbie defiantly. Sage nodded. We'll see where this goes. Only after Robbie had finished storing away the various chemicals and tools did he notice Gabriel Sage hard at work on the two gladiators. Robbie returned expecting to see his beetle and mantis dressed in Roman costumes and wielding weapons, but was surprised to discover that all Sage had done was add a couple of eye lenses onto the faces of the insects. The addition of the lenses was expertly done, and certainly lent the fight more emotion. But Robbie still found the concept of human eyes on insects fairly ridiculous and insulting. Only later did Robbie grasp that for Sage to make a single, lone alteration to his gladiators represented a silent compliment to his work. Sage had been impressed. Thank you.